from Covenant Life Fellowship. For more information about our church and to stay up to date on all sermons, events, and news, please visit our website at www.clfroseburg.com. All right, let's open our Bibles. We're going to go to the book of Romans. Romans chapter 8 is where we're going to be this morning. If you are new with us, we are finishing a series through Romans 5 through 8. We have done this through the summer, and CLF, if you've been with us, has this not been a fantastic series? I mean, it has been remarkable. The theme that we are united with Christ has just been resonating every Sunday, and we have seen some absolutely amazing things in these chapters. We've seen that Christ is our faithful and perfect representative before God. Where Adam, our first father, failed and disobeyed, Christ, our last Adam, has been perfect in every way and still right now on this day is still interceding for us. And when we put our faith and trust in Jesus, Adam, the disobedient first father, no longer represents us before God. Jesus does. That means that God no longer relates to us who are Christians on the basis of our sin, but he relates to us on the basis of Jesus' righteousness. How good is that news? This is God's gift of grace to us, and it is nothing that we have earned. What we earned was the justice and wrath of God. But what God gave us is the free gift of Christ's righteousness that we might have access to God and peace with God and eternal life promised to us. What great news. We've seen that because we're united with Jesus by faith, that sin no longer dominates us anymore. It no longer controls us with its dominant power. And Jesus, Jesus' death for us means that the penalty for our sin, which is death, no longer hangs over us anymore. Literally, in our union with Christ, we have been set free from the power and the penalty of our sin. We've seen that because we're united with Christ, we don't have to be perfect anymore. Because Jesus was perfect for us. And this is remarkably good news, isn't it? Because I'm sure if you're like me, you realize that you're not perfect. That you know you're not perfect. And this side of heaven, we will never be perfect. We daily struggle with the presence of sin. But every time we want to do the right thing, sin is like a spiritual tsunami in our faces, holding us back and trying to make things harder in our lives to follow Christ. But thankfully... Because we're united with Christ, there is no condemnation hanging over us anymore when we sin against God because Christ freed us from all condemnation. And he helps us by giving us the indwelling presence of God, the Holy Spirit, who daily reminds us that we are God's children and helps us in our daily struggle with sin and suffering. What great news that God not only declares that our sin won't have the final say over us, but God gives us his own presence to live within us to help us live life in this Genesis 3 world. That is remarkably good news. And so where does all this leave us? That's where we've landed. That's where we've stopped at the end of Romans chapter 8. Where does it leave us? Well, if you've been with us, it has left us breathless and amazed. 
It's left us amazed at the grace of God so freely given to us in Christ. It's left us amazed that God would give us this free gift of salvation by giving us His only Son, Jesus. And all of it is a gift from God. There's nothing that we have done to earn God's favor or forgiveness. Yet God in His kindness, God in His love for us, gave us Christ's death for our forgiveness and gave us Christ's perfection so that we might be declared right before God. God gave us His Spirit to help us daily and minute by minute walking in this sin-stained world. So just before we even jump into our text in Romans 8 this morning, I just want you to let that sink into your soul for a minute. Just let these truths sink in for a moment. Listen, if you're a child of God, meaning that you have put your trust in the fact that Jesus lived for you and that he died for you, that he rose again from the dead and he's right now interceding for you, that you have put your trust in the fact that he is your substitute and your representative before God, listen to this, you will receive your eternal home. You don't have the weight of shame hanging over you anymore every time you do something wrong or you make a mistake. You don't have to obey your sinful temptations anymore. And God, the God of heaven, is indwelling you to help you right now. These truths from Romans 5 through 8 are objective and are never changing. Meaning, as unchanging as God is, so is your relationship with God because you're united with Christ. I mean, let that just settle in for a moment into your soul. That you are a child of God, declared righteous because of the grace of God, forgiven by God, have been given access to God, have peace with God, have the Spirit of God indwelling you, helping you every day, and is promised by His dwelling that He will guarantee you to get you home to heaven one day, and all of that is nothing that you earned. It was all a gift of God's grace. Let that settle in for a moment. That the God of heaven was that kind and loving toward you. That is remarkable news. So as we close this series, here's what we're going to learn today. Now, if you're new with us, you should get a a bulletin. It should have an outline in it. The outline today is about three pages because we're adding quotes in there for you. Uh, But here's the big idea. This is what we want to learn today. Because of our union with Christ, now listen to this. God is for us. And nothing can separate us from his love and care. Because of our union with Christ, God is for us and nothing can separate us from his love and care. Now this is remarkably important for where you sit right now in your own lives every day of your life. And here's why. I don't know if you're like me, but I am my worst critic. Before anybody tells me that I blew it, I know I blew it. And you know why you're your own worst critic and I'm my own worst critic? It's because we are. We're the first ones to see and know that we have blown it. And here's what we do. We have a tendency to condemn ourselves long before other people condemn us. So if you're a Christian, you need to remember that God has already spoken and acted about your sin in Christ. 
And he has already declared you are forgiven and you are reconciled to God and you have peace with God because of Christ. But do you ever think as well that not only is your own critique kind of beating on you, but do you ever feel like the challenges of this world are acting and conspiring against you as well? I mean, I, I was in meetings all this last week on the East Coast, and I was in a meeting, and as we were dialoguing, one of the pastors that I was in the meeting with suddenly got a phone call, and he went out, and I could see that something was transpiring. And he comes back in, and he says, guys, I, I have got to head home as soon as these meetings are over. I just got word that a 10-year-old girl in our church last night fell out of a 10-foot tree, landed flat on her chest. They've rushed her to the hospital last night, and she's right now at the hospital waiting to determine what her injuries are. And while they're doing that, this morning, their 12-year-old daughter woke up with a pain in her side, and they're rushing her to the hospital. She's going to have to have an emergency appendectomy. And both girls are in the same hospital room with mom and dad. And this pastor is the guy who's supposed to be preaching for me on Sunday. And he said, it feels like the world is crashing down around us. Do you ever feel that way? Like this world is crashing around you with every type of trouble and struggle that you can possibly imagine. Do you ever feel like the culture is crowding in hard on you and your family? Things that you as a Christian think are moral or immoral, evil, and unhealthy for you and your family, the culture thinks are best loving and ethical. And it crowds on you no matter what sitcom or what Spotify playlist you listen to. It's as if everything is against you. Your sinful temptations, your own conscience, your, your own minds weighing down on you. Living in a Genesis 3 world where suffering, disease, and death are real. Living in a world where friends disagree with us and there's Twitter fights and social media fights at every turn and everything seems divided and the unchristian world seems to attack you on every side. Things are hard. We need the truths of Romans 5 through 8 every moment of every day, and we need to be reminded that because of our union with Christ, God, listen, God is for us, and nothing can separate us from his love and care. We need to be reminded of that. So that's Paul's conclusion. So let's stand together. We're going to read Romans 8, 31 through 39. The text is in your bulletin if you need it, if you don't have a Bible. If you do have a Bible, open with me. Romans 8, 31 through 39. And we stand because we honor God by the reading of his word, and we believe these words are true and inspired and God-breathed. And this is the reading of God's word. What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, 
nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful that today you have given us such a word as to remind us that you are for us and your people need it. We need it because, Lord, we feel like we are against our own selves. We feel like that the world is against us. We feel like that our enemy of our souls is against us. And living in this world feels like it's against us. And we need to be reminded that you, the God of the universe, you are always for your people. And nothing can separate us from your love and care. So this morning, open our eyes to this hope. Encourage your people and open our eyes to the wonders of Christ once again. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you. you. May be seated. So let's start by looking at the first point in your outline, which is which is five unanswerable questions. Now, before we jump into this point, I want you to notice something in verse 31 that as Paul begins to give the conclusion, he, he asks a question that is not part of the five unanswerable questions. This question stands over the top of all of Paul's concluding remarks. It's as if Paul, after writing the beginning eight chapters of the greatest letter ever written, puts his pen down, wipes his forehead, takes a drink of water, just sits back to take a deep breath, puts his pen back in the ink once again, and begins to write. And he just starts with, what then shall we say to these things? It's like Paul saying, so so that we know, since we know now what it means to be united with Christ, what does all of this mean? What does it mean? What's the conclusion of this? Where does this leave us? And then Paul begins to give us five questions that are unanswerable to the critics of the gospel. It's like Paul takes a logical whipping stick to the enemies of the gospel and says this, what are you going to do with what I've just written about our union with Christ? It's like he mentally then takes a moment to stare out to the ages of Christian history and says, dear Christian believer out there in Roseburg, Oregon in the 21st century, after all that we have talked about God's grace toward us in Christ, what does this say to us about God and about our relationship with him? And the first question that Paul lists is in verse 31. He says, if God is for us, Who can be against us? Another way to say this is, since God is for us, who can be against us? It is, Paul's point is clear. Christian, God no longer is opposed to you. Because of Christ, God is on your side. He is leading your team. He is captaining your ship. God is fighting for you, not warring against you. And and if the God of the universe is for you, then who shall be against you? Now, it does feel, like I said earlier, that things are against us, right? Our own sin is against us, or the world seems to be against us, or the weight of living in this world feels like it's against us. But what Paul's saying is, the God of heaven, who spoke the worlds into existence... The God of heaven who reigns in unapproachable glory, 
The God of heaven who controls every molecule of this universe, who rules on the thrones of heaven, who puts kings in authority and takes kings out of authority. That God, that God is for you. He is on your side. Because you are united with Christ, no one of any consequence is against you because God is for you. It's like a moment in 2 Kings chapter 6, if you know your Bibles, you'll know the story where the prophet Elisha was suddenly surrounded outside of his house by the massive Syrian army. And his young apprentice was was nervous and terrified about the thought that this army was coming upon them. And Elisha just said, Lord, open his eyes to see. And the, the apprentice's eyes were opened to see upon the mountains surrounding the Syrian army and surrounding Elisha's house were the angels and hosts of heaven with, with horses and chariots of fire. So like Elijah say, Elisha saying, do, do you see that our God is for us? See, the world and the daily temptations of your sin, the devil, are no match for the God who is on your side. If your God is for you, who can be against you? The second question is found in verse 32. How will God not also in Christ graciously give us all things? Now, we love to take this verse out of its context and put it into our American dream context, right? I mean, this means that that new car, that that large house, or the no debt that we suddenly heard about from our federal government, those things will suddenly come to last. (laughs) But that is not what Paul is talking about in Romans chapter 8, verse 32. He's talking about two main things. One thing he's discussing is the fact that living in a Genesis 3 world is hard and the daily struggle is real. And as we saw last week from Dave Rubel's excellent sermon, that while living in this world, we groan in suffering and challenges along with this world groaning in in the curse of sin placed upon it by God. Suffering is real. Hardships are real. But in our union with Christ, as Dave would say, There is no wasted motion with God. He is always at work in the midst of our suffering. He will take what is seemingly bad and turn it for our good. And he will provide for our needs while we're going through the hardships of this world. And he will never leave his people, listen to this, without the character-shaping, sustaining power of his presence, the Holy Spirit. But the other thing Paul is discussing here is our future inheritance. As children of God. See, this sin-stained world has a tendency to do something to you. Has a tendency to discourage you to think, is anything ever going to change? Does God ever have a plan? Will justice ever prevail? And, and what Paul is saying here is, yes, one day God will meet all of your needs. This sinful world is not your final destination. Because as a child of God, we are not seeking a kingdom or a city made with human hands, but we will one day inherit a city on a hill that cannot be hidden. And the things that God has planned for his people are far beyond our wildest imaginations. And God will provide for these things for us and gives us a happy certainty of a future inheritance. Now, I want you to notice something in the text, though. Notice how these needs on this earth and this future inheritance is secured. Notice how Paul began verse 32. He who did not spare his own son, 
but gave him up for us all. See, in other words, God gave up his only son so that we would have peaceful access to God and be God's children. And if God took care of our greatest need by giving us his son, then we can rest assured that our present needs, like milk and bread, or securing for us a future inheritance, are the most certain investments in the history of the universe. Paul is arguing from the greater to the less. Forgiveness of sin, being made right with God through Jesus' life and death is the greater. And if God did that, he will most surely accomplish the lesser, providing for your daily needs in the midst of suffering and securing your eternal inheritance. Because God did the greater, he will certainly do the lesser. In other words, in Christ, God will graciously give you the things that you need in this world and will provide for you the world to come. But there's a third question that Paul lists in verse 33. Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? See, before Christ, there was constant accusation and charges that stood against you in the court of heaven. I hope you understand that. You and I both earned God's righteous judgment because in Adam, we disobeyed God and we stood guilty before God. All of us. There's none of us that are righteous. None of us have a right standing before God. But according to Paul, God is the one who justifies. God is the one who has declared that we are right with him. And since God justified us and made us right with him, then who can bring a charge against God's people that will stick to God's people? See, God was able to justify you and I because Jesus died in our place and took the penalty of our sin, which was death. And because Jesus perfectly obeyed God's laws and demands for us, because we could never do that perfectly. And when we put our faith and trust in the fact that Jesus did this for us, then God justifies us or makes us right with him legally in the court of heaven. What that means is this. The charges that were on your life before your belief in Christ are over. There is not one accusation that can stick upon you in the court of heaven. The devil's accusations about you don't stick. Your own critique of your own actions do not determine your eternal destiny. Enemies can accuse you in this world, but the, but before the judgment seat of God, those accusations are thrown out because of lack of evidence. Since God is for us, who can bring a charge against us? Fourth question, found in verse 34, who is there to condemn us? You can feel Paul building his argument. This, this is where accusations do not stick on God's people in Christ to eternally judge us. People can accuse us. Satan can try to rock our worlds. But listen, God will never condemn us again. He has legally declared there is no condemnation and it is over and it is finished for those who are in Christ. And the reason for that, the reason that can be true is because what Paul says in the text, 
Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Do you, do you see the centrality of Christ to Paul's understanding of his relationship with God? Jesus' death was on our behalf. But in order for Jesus' death to be eternally effective for us, God raised Jesus from the dead. And your Savior who's been raised from the dead is now before the throne of God, your daily, moment-by-moment advocate and representative standing for you before the throne of God. He is daily interceding for us. Now, see, just again, just marvel, marvel at this truth. Who is there? Who is there with more authority, more strength, more influence, more control than the risen Christ? Who has more weight in the courtroom of heaven than the risen Christ? There is none. He is unparalleled. And since he died and was raised and is interceding for you, listen to what this means. No one, no one can condemn you. God cannot and will not allow it because your faithful advocate earned your justification and he, and he will, this says, there will never ever again be condemnation on you ever. If God is for us, Who can condemn us? That leads us to the fifth question, which is the radical conclusion of all that Paul has said for us in Christ. Who then shall separate us from the love of Christ? See, Paul suddenly now, at the end of this whole fantastic argument about what we are in Christ, comes to the final thing and says, let me show you what motivated God to do what he did for you. His love for us. And what will separate you, what will ever disconnect you from the love of Christ? I mean, think about this for a moment. God in his love for us gave us his son so that we could have peace with God, access to God. We could hope in the glory of God. And so that we could be counted as God's children. So listen, God sent his son. So do you think that he would allow anything or anyone to separate you from his love for you when he paid that high a price? Or take Christ, who willingly gave up his life For the will of God to save God's people. Do you think that he will allow anything to separate us from him when he willfully took the whip, took the crown of thorns, took the nails, took the verbal abuse, took the crucifixion and the coldness of the tomb? Do you think anything would would allow him to let you be separated after him giving up so high a price? Do you think the enemy has anything to offer to separate you from the eternal love of God the Father and Christ the Son? Is it persecution? Is that going to separate you? What about famine? What about nakedness or the sword? Do you think any of those things can separate you from his love? No, no, no. Paul's argument is this. Friends, God's love for us in Christ is the most protective power in the history of the universe. And if God is for us, 
can't anything separate us from his love. And his argument is, there is nothing. Now John Stott, and this quote is in your notes, wrote these words. Paul's five questions are not arbitrary. They are all about the kind of God we believe in. Together they affirm that absolutely nothing can frustrate God's purpose since he is for us. Quench his generosity since he has not spared his son. Accuse or condemn his elect since he has justified them through Christ. Or split us from his love since he has revealed it in Christ. Christian friend, listen very clearly. Your God does not look upon you with frustration. Your God does not treat you with impatience. He does not see you coming and roll his eyes as if, oh great, you're here again. Your God is always for you. He is always loving you. He is always near to you. In your union with Christ, by faith, no accusation can stick to you eternally in such a way as to condemn you. Nothing can separate you from God's love for you revealed in Christ. Nothing. But listen, non-Christian friend, you, you've got to hear the news as well. This text should be terrifying to you. Because this text would reveal something altogether different. That if God is against you, that there is no more significant threat to your soul because of your sin. You are hunted by the justice, wrath, and anger of the Almighty God of the universe, and there is no place in this universe that you can hide. That's why Paul's appeal and our appeal would be run to Christ for the shelter of your soul because there is a way for God to be for you, and it is only found in Christ. It's only found in a union with Christ. So five unanswerable questions that reveal God's love and care for his people in Christ. Now let's look at our last point today, which is more than conquerors. We'll see this in verses 37 through 39. I love the contrast here. People are freezing in the shade and people are burning up in the sun. So maybe some of y'all need to change seats, you know, which is fantastic, right? We could say hell and heaven. I'm just kidding. We want to do that, you know. Okay, right. Right. Notice how verse 37 begins. Now in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Notice that phrase, in all these things. In other words, in all the world's accusations. In all the sufferings that this world can throw at you. In in all the persecution that this world might bring upon you. Paul says... You're more than conquerors. I, I, I've studied all last few weeks, like, what is more than a conqueror? My, my, my question, and I, I understand this because of the field I'm sitting on, but what, what's more than a champion? There's, there's literally no word to describe. Champion of champions? I mean, you know, conqueror of conquerors? Yet, and Paul is saying something fascinating. In all of these things, persecution, Famine, nakedness, sword, the enemy and the accuser of our soul, our own personal sin, because of our union with Christ, listen to this, we have victory upon victory, and the only way to describe that is, you're more than conquerors. In other words, in Christ, we are so right with God, 
that we are more than conquerors over any sin that might easily beset us. We are so connected with God in Christ that we are more than conquerors over any accusation that might try to separate us from God. We are so secure in the family of God because of Christ that we are more than conquerors over any trial that might try to remove us from God's family. See, we are more than conquerors, but don't miss the preposition that Paul uses, through Christ. We are living the victory of victories through Him who loved us. And the only way Paul could describe this is, in our union with Christ, you are more than conquerors. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. And notice the certainty of Paul in verse 38 when he said, I am sure. And then he goes on to list all these possible, powerful, in our mind, unimaginable things that might rip us from God and God's love in Christ. And he says, none of these things, nor anything in all of creation, can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Notice something about Paul. His confidence is not in his own love for God. His confidence is not in his own faithfulness toward God nor is his confidence in his obedience to God. Paul's confidence that nothing can separate us from God's love is God's love revealed to us in Christ. You know what that means, don't you? It means that your safety in the arms of God is not found in your ability to stay in his arms. We think about that. I watch parents right now who are trying to keep kids in their arms, right? You know, they're doing this thing. You, you may squirm and wiggle from God's arms. Your confidence is not in your strength to stay in God's arms. Your confidence is in the strength of God's arms. He is not going to let you slip out. Your security in the family of God is not found in your love for God. It's found in his love for you. Friends, our confidence that nothing will separate us from the love of God found in Christ Jesus is not based on our ability or our fickle hearts. And aren't you glad about that? It's based upon God's love for us found in Christ. And the greatest demonstration of this is that Christ came. He lived perfectly before God, died a cruel death that we deserved and was raised from the dead. And we know, loved by this, don't we, that he gave up his life for us. Our victory of victories over sin and suffering, our freedom from the power and penalty of sin, our security in this life and the next are sure because of our union with Christ. As sure and as certain as God is, so is your relationship with God in Christ. So Christian, let, let this, let this just sink into your soul. Let it just settle into you. Your God is for you. You don't wake up in the morning and your God suddenly goes, oh no, not them again. He is for you. Your God will provide for you in this life and the next because he gave up his son for you. And is it too little for him to provide your milk and bread when he provided forgiveness of sin and reconciliation with him? 
Your Savior Jesus is the only one who died for you. And God approved of all that he did by raising him from the dead. And your champion, your Savior, your your conqueror of conquerors is right now representing you before the God of heaven. All the good that is in Christ is given to you by God's grace. Your confidence that God loves you is your union with Christ. Your confidence that God accepts you is your union with Christ. Your confidence that you will never be condemned nor ever forsaken is your union with Christ. And this means that nothing, nothing past, nothing present, Nothing in the future can ever separate you from the love of God found in Christ Jesus our Lord. Listen, you are as secure in your relationship with God as Jesus is because you're united with Christ. That is remarkably great news. I want to quote, going to close it today in this whole series by reading a quote by John Newton. John Newton was the author of the great hymn, Amazing Grace. In his letters, John Newton wrote a variety of things. And just this last week on the East Coast, one of the brothers brought a devotional, and he said, I want to read something to you that I think describes what we talked about on Tuesday with Dave about our union with Christ. And it just dawned, this would be a perfect final quote for our series. And here's what John Newton wrote. Though sin wars, it shall not reign. And though it breaks our peace... It cannot separate us from his love, nor is it inconsistent with his holiness and perfection to manifest his favor to such poor, defiled creatures or to admit them to fellowship with himself. For they are not considered as in themselves, but as one with Jesus, to whom they have fled for refuge and by whom they live a life of faith. They are accepted in the beloved. They have an advocate with the Father who made, who once made an atonement for their sins and ever lives to make intercession for their persons. Though they cannot fulfill the law, he has fulfilled it for them. Though the obedience of the members is defiled and imperfect, the obedience of their head is spotless and complete. And though there is much evil in them, there is something good, the fruit of his own gracious spirit. Hereby the Lord Jesus Christ is more endeared to the soul. All boasting is effectually excluded, and the glory of full and free salvation is ascribed to him alone. When after a long experience of their own deceitful hearts, after repeated proofs of their weakness, will, willingness, ingratitude, and insensibility, they find that none of these things can separate them from the love of God in Christ, Jesus becomes more and more precious to their souls. They love much because much has been forgiven them. They dare not, they will not ascribe anything to themselves, but are glad to acknowledge that they must have perished, if possible, a thousand times over, if Jesus had not been their Savior, their shepherd, and their shield. When they were wandering, he brought them back. When fallen, he raised them. When wounded, he healed them. When fainting, he revived them. By him, out of weakness, they have been made strong. He has taught their hands to war and covered their heads in the day of battle. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you today that we stand in the presence of God
because our Savior is there. Our confidence to enter your throne room is because we have confidence that our Savior has lived perfectly, died in our place, and rose again from the dead. And he is right now standing, interceding for us before your throne, and you treat us as if you treat Christ. And I pray for the Christian this morning that is here. Father, our dear brothers and sisters, when accusations from their own soul arise, they would remind themselves, if God is for us, who can be against us? That when this world crowds in hard against them through suffering and trial, they will remind themselves that because God has given them Christ, He will, He will most certainly provide everything they need in this sin and suffering world. That when the enemy of their souls attempts to distract them from God's love, that you will remind them, now there's nothing that can separate you from the love of God found in Christ Jesus. That, Father, you would lift our souls. That truly Christ would become more dear, more affectionate in our souls because of all that he has done for us. And we thank you that in our union with Christ, the dominant power of sin over us no longer has mastery. That the penalty of sin no longer hangs over us. And that we are yours, and we're yours alone, from now through eternity. What a gift. And Father, I pray for our non-Christian friends who are here, that they might hear this gospel and put their trust in the risen Christ. Help them be on your side, not opposed to you. So Father, we, we worship you. We magnify your great name. For you alone have given us this glorious gospel of Christ to help us be united to him. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. This sermon has been proudly given in response to cherishing the gospel of Jesus Christ. Be sure to check out our YouTube channel and subscribe to watch all our sermons online. For more information about Covenant Life Fellowship, visit us on the web at www.clfroseburg.com.